Well, thank you all for coming out uh, again uh, tonight. Japanese language, culture, literature, history, all within about an hour, so that shouldn't be too hard, <laughs> because there's nothing there, as everybody knows. Um, I I'm never quite sure why people aren't interested in history, but if you just read the history of Japan, it's hard to imagine how that wouldn't make you fascinated to understand world history better, because it's just truly uh, amazing cultural evolution and development. Um, in Japan. I think one way to ponder this, and this is sort of when Japan springs into the Western consciousness, is essentially 1905. Uh, one estimate states that in the United States prior to World War II, which is a little even later than that, 1915, uh, there were probably only 65 non-Japanese who spoke Japanese in the United States. That's the, 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 you know, it's hard to calculate these things, but they're just there were no Japanese study programs. There's just almost no one who actually spoke Japanese in the United States, uh, which is an extraordinary sense of how unpresent uh, Japanese was in sort of the international concept of the world. If, if it was thought of it as all, it was thought of as this sort of insignificant place off the coast of China, of course, the Middle Kingdom being the important place, particularly if you ask the Chinese, they would tell you this. Um, but the, the historically, this is, this is wildly inaccurate. Much like the story of Korea, Korea was not simply this appendage of China. <laughs> Japan was not just an appendage of Japanese culture. But in 1905, during the Russo-Japanese War, um, for the first time in, for a very long time, maybe 900 years, an Asian uh, army defeated uh, quite soundly one of the great European powers, being Russia. It's completely unlooked for. If, if you had placed odds on this, on back the Japanese side, you would have got 10, 20, 30 to 1 payoff. Because everybody knew the Asian races were decadent, ignorant, backwards. They could not do any sort of advanced thinking because, of course, they're genetically inferior. They're physically diminutive and therefore incapable of any sort of thinking or physical work that was complicated. Um, so th th all of the worst imaginable stereotypes were there. In fact, these persisted so much that, believe it or not, right up until World War II, there was still American military. These are documented military officers who would say things like, well, the Japanese can't fight us because they're incapable of flying planes. You know, it was just, it's, I mean, the fact that they were flying planes doesn't seem to throw people off, but they were doing it, right? But, but this concept was so deeply ingrained. But in 1905, this had never happened. No one even predicted this had happened. But Japan on ground, uh, on land, Port Arthur being one of the most important battlefronts, and most importantly on the sea, the battleship was the sort of most technologically advanced thing in the world at the time. If you could build a battleship, it's like an aircraft carrier today. There's only about three countries in the world that can build aircraft carriers today. The United States, of course, France, sort of, China, maybe. And that's, you know, they're, they're really Russia a little bit. They're it's so complicated and so difficult and so expensive that to have one is to be just sort of a lead power automatically. Well, not only did Japan produce them, they destroyed twice two of the largest uh, naval contingents ever in some of the largest naval battles in history. By convincingly, not by a little bit, they didn't get lucky, they crushed the Russians. 
for various reasons. One being that Russia was very, very far away from Japan, the way they had to come with their Baltic Sea Fleet. Um, and this caught the world's attention in a phenomenal way. All of a sudden, they're like, wait a second. Maybe, maybe the Japanese are different. And this theory of some sort of fundamental difference of the Japanese has persisted right up until today, that there is something in Japan that makes them different from the other ignorant, backward Asian races, right? <laughs> this is sort of the, 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 uh, the you know, sort of two sides are different because you know, it's a very strange and troubling psychological imprint that we have. Um, but it really launched the Japanese on the world stage. And what everyone tried to figure out then and to a certain extent now is how did this happen? In 1862-ish, Perry, American uh, naval officer, shows up in Japan, and Japan has no chance. They essentially have to surrender. They fight a little bit, but I mean, they, they just have no chance against modern arms, none whatsoever. And they realize this pr pretty readily. And then the Americans don't exploit this opening of Japan because, well, we had a civil war, and so we were preoccupied. But the British moved right in and continued on. And they brought Japanese into the then international imperial sphere of power, which meant they're a third-rate power, England runs the show, the European countries run the show, and we'll just abuse you, and then that's good. Um, Forty years later, they're defeating a major European power with the most advanced technological weapons ever. From the outside, this looked like a stunning revolution in advance. How did they go from savages, ignorant, to defeating us in 40 years? And it's still referred to as the Japanese miracle. Um, one, the most obvious explanation, the one that seems to be overlooked, is they really weren't savages in 1862. Uh, and they didn't actually move as far as it looks like in 40 years because they were pretty far along already. Um, and so that's where we want to start, to think about this. But this is when Japan breaks onto the world stage. And understand how they made this seemingly miraculous, but not that miraculous, leap in 40 years, you need to kind of go all the way back. So if you look at the map of Japan, you can see it's this long string of islands. Um, it, it, they're very close to Korea on one side, very close to China on the other. They're not in this map, but you can just see you know, surrounded by water, island culture. Um, occupied since Paleolithic times, going back 40,000 years BC. But it's really, uh, and by the way, uh, Chinese sources begin referring to Japan, no written sources in Japan for a long, long time, but Chinese sources begin to referring to Japan, yeah, some debate around 300 BC, but certainly by 50 BC. Very clear references, very consistent references to something's going on in the Japanese islands. Um, but it's really about 300 AD that uh, during the, the Yamato period, there's listed in the timeline, that there's a political organization that begins to spread out over Japan. If you look at the geography of Japan, though, this is one of the things that's important to note. Basically, it's all mountains and coastline. Today, Japan has the most forest cover of any industrialized nation. I think it's about 75% forest. Which is, which is astounding, and it, it, it's, it's because it's so steep and mountainous that really it's the most best way to use the, the ground. It's, it's like a big forest garden. It's all maintained, cultivated. It's, it's farm forestry. They cut down the trees, and then they regrow them. 
but it's so mountainous, there's almost no arable land. Of course, there is some arable land, uh, but not a lot, certainly not relative to the size of the population. And so getting anywhere is very difficult, extraordinarily difficult, particularly before you know, modern road systems developed. It's all up and down or coastline. So they became very good at sea travel early on and became very good at walking up hills, I guess, very, very early on. But the, but the political unification of Japan was very difficult. And this would recur throughout their history simply because the physical barriers were so impassable. The same thing happened. Why did Greek city-states persist for so long? One of the reasons was during the stormy season, they couldn't sail around the islands. And during the winter, you couldn't get through most of the passes. And so each of those city-states, or many of them, and there were many, many, many of them, would be isolated for long periods of time by the weather and by the rough oceans. Very similar thing in Japan. This is a difficult country to unify because it's long, it's a very big country, and it's mountainous the whole way. So they have these sort of geographic barriers. But during the Amato period, this begins to be unified. Political structure starts to spread out. Um, Buddhism comes over from Korea about 552. Lots of cultural exchange with China during this time, as well as with Korea. So a huge influence of Chinese letters. Um, then you get the Nara period, 700 to 800, and this is when you start to get old Japanese. The, the oldest written forms of Japanese come in the Nara period, and what they are, similar to Korea, is they just took the Chinese letters, kanjis, Chinese uh, symbols, kanji, and use them to represent roughly Japanese speech. But of course, you always have this problem, and this has happened many, many times in history, when you try to take somebody else's uh, uh, system, whether it's a syllabary or symbol system or whatever, and transplant it onto your language. Usually doesn't work that well. But we start getting these kinds of texts in the Nara period. And so there's lots of development, lots of cultural centralization, sort of even an imperial system with a center growing in Japan and then as in this middle of Japan and then sort of political power reaching out and, and sort of colonizing different sections of Japan. Because again, it's not neither culturally nor, nor politically um, completely organized yet. It takes quite a while. And then you get one of... Uh, this just amazing period, the Heian period in Japan, which is just this phenomenal explosion of artistic and aesthetic development. And weirdly, sort of almost unbelievably, if you have a country that's all mountains and lots of coast, the history of this is perfectly clear. You put your capital on the coastline because it's the only way you can access trade, you can send out missions, you build your economy, so during the Han period, they moved the capital to Kyoto, which would be the modern-day equivalent of moving your capital to Denver, Colorado. <laughs> it's the Denver, Colorado of Japan. It's a nice little bowl. It's a valley, beautiful, but isolated. It's isolated today. In the Han period, 800, it was exactly nowhere. And this was the idea that they came up with. They had a noble family. This is where the emperor begins to really gain his power. Surrounded by a court, the Heian court. And they isolated themselves from the outside world. They stopped having trade missions and embassies to China. They said, that's enough of your influence. 
and they removed themselves from the provinces, which is, it's a very strange idea, but they became inward looking. It's sort of like Louis XIV's Versailles. What happens in Kyoto matters. What happens outside does not matter. So much so that the worst thing that could happen for you is to be appointed like governor of some district. Because then you would have to leave the capital. And if you left the capital, you became nothing. So many people, if they were appointed governor, would then farm that out to somebody else. And so you had lots of the governments of the provinces living in Kyoto. Even though the province was like six months of literally, it could be six months of travel away. Where do you work? I work there. I'm the governor. Have you ever been there? No. Are you going there? Absolutely not. <laughs> Are you kidding me? That would be social and political death. The other thing that happens now as they isolate themselves is it's an opportunity for Japanese, the language, to really develop as a literary and cultural language. And what happened specifically is the court functionaries, all men, of course, because women are dirt, uh, all the court functionaries, all men, are involved in this unbelievably elaborate ritual culture all built around ancient Chinese texts and language. So all, all the court functions done in Chinese. Ah, but the very well-educated women writing, two specific examples that we'll get to in a second, begin writing in a, a hybrid of less Chinese, more Japanese. They start developing the, the, the rudiments, the beginnings of the Japanese syllabary, to express basically Japanese idea, their world, their life, things for which there aren't characters in the Chinese, or they didn't feel there were characters for. And this is the beginning of, of, of Japanese, really, you know, sort of the, the, the major roots of Japanese. What's astounding is as impossible as modern Japanese is, the old, or this sort of middle old Japanese, is much, much harder. I mean, these women had to be stunningly brilliant. It's impossible. I mean, modern Japanese is impossible. Ancient Japanese is that's just, it's just wrongly difficult. Um, but you get two key texts here, and they're both some of the great classics in world literature. They were of, of unparalleled merit. One is the tale of the Genji. If anybody's had the opportunity to read this, is a, a truly wonderful, spectacular text. It has great historical value because it seems to have been truly realistic of court life, so that's a rare thing to have. Uh, aesthetic merit because it is the flowering of the Japanese language, the early, the early flowering of the Japanese language, um, tied to beautiful poetic expression, tied to a great plot. Uh, tied to a sensibility that is rare in world history. You just don't get this sort of thing that's awful. It opens with our hero, the Genji, and some of his pals arguing what makes women beautiful. And, and, and you know, is it the way they fold their letters? There's a lot of people who hold the way you fold your letter. This is the most important thing. And the Genji is embarrassed because he gets a love letter from a woman, and the color of the paper is a touch garish. And so he won't open it in front of his friends. He kind of sort of pushes it aside because he doesn't want them to know that he's with such a D-class A woman that she would use that color ink on that color paper. Good Lord. You know, they have perfume-making competitions. They have poetry-writing competitions. So it's just this beautiful, luxurious, uh, sensual idea. Um, and this, is, this was um, written by Lady Murasaki. She was a member of the court. Um, well, if you have a woman attached to the court. 
And it really just gives you this sealed environment. At one point, the Genji is exiled. Apparently, it was about four miles outside the boundaries of Kyoto. And he writes all these just heart-wringing letters. Here I am in the wilderness. <laughs> you know, you could, if he stood on a hill, he could see, right? Kyoto is not that far away. But for them, you were either inside or you were outside. Four miles, five miles, is outside, right? And, and so this window that we get from the tale of the Genji onto not the origins of both the literature of Japan, but also many of the cultural or aesthetic ideas that we associate with Japanese-ish, if you want to. Things like Japanese gardening, where does it come from? One of the places it comes from, influenced by China. But if you're a court official, and you've heard that there's beautiful mountains over there, but you're never gonna leave Kyoto, what do you do? You build a miniature replica. You build a model of the place you're never going to go, because good Lord, no one goes there. And then you say, look, the mountains. Beautiful system. And so this notion of the enclosed, carefully manicured representative garden, symbolic garden, begins with this move towards isolation, inward-looking, self-development. Um, the other one that we get very similar to the tale of the Genji is the, the pillow book of... Oh, by the way, there's a new trans, newest translation by Royal Tyler of the tale of the Genji. That's the one to go for. Excellent notes, and it's a book that you need notes for. Because they continuously write letters back and forth to each other of the form of, you know, the geese fly south, the sun sets water in the pond. Which means, unfortunately, my husband is back, so we can't sleep together tonight, so we'll have to wait till Wednesday. <laughs> You're like, what? <laughs> How do you get that? Out? And then, then they write back, the mist moves across the moon, the chrysanthemum is shadowed, the sun will return, which means, oh, that's all right, I got another chick over here on the side. And you're like, how, 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 how do they know this? So you need notes, because some of this is really like, I, but apparently these are literally, they were, they were so heavily literary that this is how you wrote. Did you say something directly? It just meant you were an uneducated slob. Um, it was the style, the presentation. We all know the language, so we all know the references, so everything is reference. You never say anything directly, everything is reference. It's another thing that develops as a tradition in Japanese literary culture, which continues right to today. Um, and then you get the Pillow Book of Saishonagon, which is, wow, it's wonderful. Things that make the heart beat faster. <laughs> the soft feet of your lover as he leaves in the morning. Oh. Ice in a silver bowl. Right? So she has these lists of things that make the heart beat faster. And it, they're just wonderful. Her, the sensitivity, the sensibility, extraordinary. And then she's got all kinds of court gossip, always great. Somehow, court gossip is good 1,300 years later. I don't know why that is, <laughs> but we love it. And, and there you get some court gossip. She's very mean to other women, to people she likes, she doesn't like. But it is, it, rarely in world literature, particularly from this period, do you get such an uh, astounding insight in, into a culture as it's developing. We're seeing the language developing. We're seeing the art developing. We're seeing the cultural interactions develop. It's all there sort of at its birth. And, and so they're just amazing. So I can't recommend those highly enough. Um, the downside of this is there are a couple of them. One, 
if you were in a noble, you just did not matter. I do not believe there is a reference to anyone, maybe a servant or two, maybe not, in the entirety of either of these works. It's just all nobles, everybody else, dirt. Two, you can see where eventually this is going to become problematic. If no one ever leaves the capital, but all your food and trade and goods come from someplace else, ooh, the balance starts to shift away from Kyoto. And, and slowly, two families, uh, the Tarwa and the Minamoto, is that right? Tawa and Minamoto? Yeah. Taira. Taira, thank you. Taira and the Minamoto. Uh, accumulate enough power to make a run at taking over the country. Um, and this sort of, the, their coming battles and everything that follows from that brings an end to the Heian period. Um, and what they want to do, the, the king, if you will, in this game, is the emperor. Already in the Heian court, the emperor had no power. He is completely symbolic. But whoever had the emperor won. Symbolic importance, zero political authority. It's almost hard for us to imagine. It's kind of hard to understand. But this is, this is the game they played. Um, and so they go at each other in this epic civil war. And this is another great work, Tale of the Heike. You get this sort of story of, of the coming of the battles that in the Heian period and move towards sort of this, if you want to, it's like not a good historical term, but the samurai period. This is where the samurai come from. Because what was an imperial system based in Kyoto becomes a feudal, medieval-type system where you have lots of warlords aligned with families loosely, strongly, different families, not just two, by the way, lots of families, all these allegiances changing back and forth. And the key power source was the samurai because they were the guy with the, guys with the swords. And they tended to be associated, again, strongly with families, but, you know, sometimes loosely, sometimes, you know, allegiances would change. And so all these shifting of fortunes back and forth, and I've sort of listed this as the Kamakura, Muromachi, and Azuchi period from 1200 to 1600. And those are three major political <coughs> developments, but all of them are basically the centralization of Japan along very strong feudal lines the power base being the samurai. Um, but slowly also over this time, the country becomes increasingly centralized. And as with any feudal system, centralization means power shifting to a center and away from the feudal lords. Right? This is why kings hate the aristocracy. We always get confused. We think, oh, kings and the aristocracy are associated. No, they're natural enemies. Because the more power a king has, the less the aristocracy has. The more the aristocracy has, the less the king has. And so if you're the king in this game, you're the shogun. Well, you want your, the people around you to have increasingly less power. Because you don't want someone uh, 500 miles away to have a huge army that they might mobilize against you. And so centralization is, is happening. Centralization is happening. And finally... We get another big series of civil wars, too complicated to go into now. Um, in the uh, Tokugawa period, this is the Tokugawa shogunate, where the Tokugawa folks take over, lots of intrigue there, and they move the capital to Edo. Now, Edo, modern-day Tokyo, essentially, had been developing already for a while. It had been growing. But when, when the Tokugawa shogunate moves the capital there and makes it stick for about 250 years, 
it really starts to boom. <coughs> the other thing that happens is they establish a peace. One reason the Tokugawa were able to take over is because everybody's tired of fighting. It was really one of these, you know what? We're exhausted, the economy is exhausted, we can't take it anymore. We're just, you know, sort of, you take over, great. We're, we're done. And so power starts to centralize in Tokyo, where it is today, by the way. This pattern is established very early. Um, and the samurai class, which is huge and important, estimates put it between 6 and 10% of the population. Some regions it was higher. Crucially, the question is now, what do you do? You've been fighting, I mean, pretty consistently for several hundred years. You have 10% or more of your population who is basically professional warriors. And they sort of have a caste system, which means you can only be a professional warrior. You lose too much honor and status if you transition out of that. Well, they brought them in sort of as bureaucrats. So they said, well, we're going to have an increasingly bureaucratic state. When you centralize, you get bureaucrats. That's the history of these things. And so they slowly transitioned a lot of the samurais to become the accountants and the bookkeepers and the judges and the traveling inspectors. Became sort of this bureaucratic warrior class. So they have the warrior ideal, which importantly included being educated. We'll talk about this. Um, combined with this sort of bureaucratic edifice that, that just soaked them up, sort of brought them in. So this kept, helped keep things peaceful. Um, and you get a couple of developments from this. 200 years of peace, peace usually good for your economy. In this case, it was. Rice growing technology improves. Contact with Japan or China had been going along. They'd imported a lot of stuff. They closed that down again during this period. It's another period where they closed Japan off as they focus on centralizing and developing internally. Uh, population densities increase. Uh, during this period, Edo slash Tokyo becomes probably the largest city in the world for about 100 years, which is important to remember. Um, very becomes, by historical standards, a very urbanized population. And this leads to the second, or a second great flowering in Japanese cultural history, which is the development of kabuki theater, the puppet theater, and no theater. <coughs> No being different. The puppet theater and the kabuki theater are very closely aligned. No theater is sort of slightly different. But, but all of this culture centered on Edo, not exclusive to Edo, but really if you can think of it just being this is the heart of it. And this crazy idea sprang up called the floating world. And in Japanese, it's a very hierarchical society. This is, this is continuing even today. Um, we'll talk about that in the language. And they created this world, which basically think of as a red light district. It's sort of a Las Vegas in the middle of Utah, right? It was just this idea of we have this heavily constrained society, very status conscious and ordered. And then inside the floating world, called the floating world, because you got through it through real bridges or sort of imaginary bridges that passed you over into a magic land, sort of literally magic land, borrowing imagery from Shintoism. <coughs> in which you had you know, courtesans, you had the theater, the kabuki theater, crucially. You had uh, places to drink, you had gambling establishment, but most importantly, you had artists, the painters, everybody, the poets. It was a place where people of different background, you had to have money, but if you had a little money, you could get in. And then you could mix socially, which was unheard of. This is, this is a big breakthrough in Japanese society. 
It's not a public space, which is totally regulated. It's not a private space, which was regulated very heavily by social custom and laws. It was sort of, a, sort of like I said, sort of like a Las Vegas. What happens in the floating world stays in the floating world, <laughs> right? This is, this is kind of the, the theory. Um, and so you get developments like the Kabuki Theater. Originally, Kabuki Theater, which is almost unique in the history of, of theater, by the way, allowed women on stage. And it was so popular that the authorities stepped in and said, okay, that's too popular. Plus, we think they're all prostitutes. So they said, no more of that. So the Kabuki guys said, all right, well, we won't do that anymore. But they were huge. They were like massive pop stars. There's thousands and thousands and thousands of prints still in existence of, of the stars. Because they were so popular, everybody would buy prints of them. It was a big industry helped develop Japanese printing technology and painting. And, and just it's a whole pop industry, basically. So they said, okay, no more women on stage because they're all prostitutes and we don't like this elevation of women. Rich women, right? That's always bad. So they said, great, we'll substitute those roles with young boys, which generated exactly the same problems, <laughs> it turns out. So they said, okay, no more of that. You have to have men of a certain age to play the women. And so again, I think pretty much uniquely in the history of theater, where you always had young men playing the roles of women, the Japanese authorities finally stepped in and said, no, you've got to have older men playing the roles of of, of young women. And so uh, if you see Kabuki today in traditional theater, it is still in, in no theater, but particularly noticeable of Kabuki is it, it's unbelievably beautiful, but it is these specially trained men who play the role of these beautiful, often young women in these dances. It's just heart-rending. I mean, it's just, ah, they're so gorgeous, just gorgeous, unbelievably elegant. And there's something about it as if everyone talks about that the fact that they aren't women somehow makes it more beautiful. I don't know why that is. It's this odd effect. Also, most of the kabuki plays in the sort of the Shakespeare of Japan wrote for kabuki and interchangeably puppet theater. And so if you think of Punch and Judy, it's sort of this very highly developed Punch and Judy theater. But they were the same plays. They could be done with puppets, some of which were almost like half life size, uh, some of which were smaller. Um, or with the traditional kabuki, with developed music. And so you have this flowering of the theater, roughly contemporaneously with Shakespeare. But what you'll notice if you read some of the kabuki plays, or the no plays, they're much more domestic. They're not about kings and queens necessarily. They're lovers who have debts, whose uncle wants them to marry somebody else. <coughs> So we have to commit suicide. We have to do something. They're a young woman who's left to be eaten by a dragon. One of the most beautiful dances you'll ever see. Um, and, and, but played by an adult man dressed as an adult woman. Just gorgeous. And, and so all of these aesthetic developments and literary developments in this second flower, and again, still influential today. When, when, if you look at Japanese uh, cartoons, uh, painting t today, People go, wow, that's strange. Wow, this is weird. Where does this come from? Go look at kabuki theater. Go look at no theater. Look at those traditions, those forms. And you'll see a lot of those influences, just they're coming straight through. The same way that Shakespeare influences us. You know, I think it would be hard to understand a lot of American theater and film if you hadn't seen Shakespeare. If you go see Shakespeare and read him, you go, oh, right, got it. 
So this is what's going on. And then, so that, by the way, Japan is very closed off, increasingly closed off. They had contact with the Portuguese. They had contact with the Dutch. They did not trust them because, of course, they were trying to convert uh, uh, the Japanese to Christianity, which was really only a problem because it was an alternative power source to the Tokugawa shogunate. They had nothing against religion. In fact, they weren't particularly religious one way or the other most of the time in Japanese history. Um, but they didn't want anybody to say, look, God is more important than the shogun. Well, that's wrong, right? That's just that's a non-starter, so we're going to kill you now. Um, and so this very isolated context there, a little bit going on, trade off and on. But they were not ignorant of the outside world. This is important to know. They knew what was going on. They had, they had sent a few trade missions out. They interrogated everybody that they came in contact with. But so after 200-ish years, 250 years of pretty incredible isolation, Perry shows up with a ship that they can't do anything about. And with technology so clearly advanced that the Japanese sort of quickly go, wow, right, we give up, we'll sign these unbelievably, uh, uh, wow, demeaning trade agreements. The, the, one of the great articles you can read all these say is if an American, say, uh, captain gets arrested in Tokyo, he has to be tried by an American court, which is to say you have no control of our citizens. But if we capture one of your citizens, good Lord, they have no rights at all. Right? So all these unequal trade agreements include these bizarre clauses and, and clearly demeaning. And, and the Japanese, by the way, were not fooled. They weren't like, oh, wow, this looks really good. No, they're like, wow, this is a horrible agreement and we don't want to sign it, but we think we have to. And this undoes the Tokugawa shogunate, which was already in trouble, however. This is important to note that the arrival of Perry and the British accelerated something that was already going on. There was unrest in the countryside. Many of the warlords, the daimyo out there, were unhappy. And they start moving, basically, against the Tokugawa shogunate. And what you end up with is the Meiji Restoration, which was this long, complicated game to see who got the emperor. Whoever got the emperor won. So, but it was not a restoration. It was really quite a revolutionary change in, in Japanese history. Um, and they got sort of a faux parliament and all these changes. But most importantly, what they got was the idea of the modern world. And they looked around and they said, right, if we're going to want to compete and we want to be important, we have to do what the Russians and the British and the Americans are doing. And that is get an empire and get technologically advanced. Yeah, this build, build, yeah, just start building and copying and matching and advancing. But here's where the miracle, and it is amazing what happened in the next 40 years, but it's not that amazing. Probably the most urbanized society in the world was Japan. If they weren't the most, they were close to it. Certainly one of the most educated. The entire samurai class, the whole bureaucratic class, was very educated. Um, they had technological knowledge because they had been trading. They had been looking around. They had been importing things and studying them. And then once they said, right, you've got to open the country, the Japanese were aggressively sent missions out to Europe, all over the place. And they said, look, your job, you're an engineer, you're a linguist, you're a legal scholar, you're a historian, you go out, you learn. You come back, we're going we're to make changes. We're going to get this place rolling. But it was already a highly centralized, high, excellent banking, important to note. They had the banking infrastructure that allowed them to make these kinds of trends. They had a good tax structure. They had educated bureaucrats. 
They had an advanced educational infrastructure. They were ready to go. They could take this on in a way a lot of countries could not when they encountered imperialism for the first time because they were not backwards. They were really, in some ways, quite advanced. Um, and so we, I want to pause there and say, so this is where it really starts to get going. But one of the amazing things about the education level of Japan is, is let's talk and ponder a moment about Japanese, because this is where modern Japanese really starts to get going. It's been changing a lot since its early origins in the Heian court. Like I said, that was impossible Japanese. Think of it that way. It's the Japanese that nobody can speak. Japanese people today cannot really read the original, those original texts. So the tale of the Ginji in Japanese was famously, amongst others, translated by Jinichiro Tanizaki into modern Japanese. And one way he became famous as an author, he's an incredible author, was by translating the tale of the Ginji from Japanese into Japanese. Uh, but from the ancient Japanese into a modern Japanese. But if you want to know Japanese today, or at the end of the Tokugawa Shogunate through today, um, you need to learn three alphabets, which is convenient. Um, <laughs> Because one is no good. Basically, what the Japanese have is one of everything. Some languages have one kind of alphabet or one linguistic set, but they have uh, hiragana, which is a syllabary, which means each, each symbol stands for pronunciation. And you can see it here. Uh, kaki, ku, ke, ko, there, hiragana. Uh, and this is how you construct Japanese words, which makes sense, right? That's no problem. But then they have katakana, which... I have no idea why they have this, uh, but they do. It's a nice system. Uh, to import foreign words. And so you write foreign words uh, in a different set of, with a different syllabary. But this is not exclusive, by the way. This, this, you know, nothing is clean, right? They, they do a little mixing. They change things that are foreign words can become Japanese words officially after enough time, right? So there's all this. So this is not like a, a hard and fast, totally clear. If it were really clear, of course, that would be simple. Um, and then you have kanji, which is just Chinese characters. And to be literate in Japan, you need roughly 2,000. If you want to read the newspaper, you need to know about 2,000 Chinese characters. To be really literate, sort of, you know, university Japanese literature type literature, you need really five going on 10,000 Chinese characters, which is basically being literate in Chinese. So to really be really literate in Japanese, you need to know Chinese, hiragana, and katakana. It's just crazy. I don't know how anybody's ever literate. It's an extraordinarily challenging language to be very literate in. But when Perry shows up, they had a very large, for the historical period, literate population, and they were very literate. Most of them, many of them, had the full Chinese literacy and Japanese literacy to go with it. So this was not a, a backward society. This is you know, maybe, potentially, one of the best educated societies the world had ever seen up to that point because of the challenges just of, of the language. And this is basically how Japanese is structured today. You have a, a syllabary for Japanese words, hiragana. You have a syllabary for foreign import words, of which they have a vast number, katakana. And then you have the Chinese characters, all of which are mixed around. The Chinese characters don't necessarily mean what they used to mean in Chinese anymore, and they're often used in more than one way, backward. Uh, the, the katakana for the import words, they often change the words when they import them. So, so it seems like it would be simple. Oh, we have a word like 
uh, what was it, was supermarket. So they, you could write it in, in katakana and make supermarket, but I think they've changed it to something like super. Right? So it's not actually the foreign word anymore, and it just becomes its own word. And then sometimes they mix the katakana and the hiragana to make a new sort of loan word. Um, they also import unbelievably whole words from English, in English. So if you look at a Japanese newspaper, I tried to reproduce it, I couldn't make a good reproduction of it, you will occasionally see whole English words right in the middle of a, of a paragraph. Which is like, what the hell is that? That's a whole other language. You've already got Chinese and two Japanese languages, why do you need a new one? But, you know, so literacy in Japan is no small thing. And yet, they're one of the most literate societies in the world. They read more books, by far, per capita than we do. They read lots and lots of newspapers. And they develop this incredibly flowering literary culture, which we'll talk about. So you get the Maiji Restoration. This is a third unbelievable flowering of uh, Japanese culture. Um, one of my favorite authors, Yasunari Kawabata, said, after the fall of the, of the Maiji period, uh, to the militarists, essentially, he said, everything I write from now will be an elegy. That's it. That's all I'm writing. Because what I loved, what I saw, is gone. And, and after the war, he won the Nobel Prize in Literature after the war, uh, first Japanese person to win the Nobel Prize in Literature. Um, they, they asked him, they said, oh, what do you think about the coming of democracy? Hate it. Well, what do you think about the militarists? Hated it. Like, well, those are your two choices, right? He's like, no, 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 no. Those aren't the two choices. There was another one. I loved that one. That was the one. Um, a, a clearer version of this you can get, uh, one of the texts that I have here is uh, um, In Praise of Shadows by Junichiro Tanazaki. I mentioned him because he had written, he had done the translation in Japanese of the tale of the Genji. Um, is it's a nonfiction essay, very brief, in which he talks about exactly what Kawabata was talking about which is what, what Japan is losing from its past as it modernized. Both of them had been born before the militarism that came in the, in the late 20s and 30s, and certainly before the war, and they're writing about, oh, you know, here's what we saw leaving. Electric light bulb, that seems like a good idea, but in a culture developed in shadow, it's not that nice. Windows and walls and insulation seem like a good idea, but there's no moonlight on the rice paper screens. You know, when you lose moonlight on the rice paper screens, you've lost something of a measurable value. Um, and so you get this, a, a lot of this, but you get this unbelievable flourishing of, of literature in Japan, partly because they were very effective at importing the novel form. They had the history of the Genji, one of the earliest, if not the earliest novels, um, which is sort of, if, if, if you read it, you'll see it's sort of a cross between Proust and a soap opera. It, it, you know, it's even more soap opera-y than, than, than Proust is, which is hard to achieve. Um, but it is. And so they had this idea of the novel already, and so when they encountered the Western novel from the outside, it wasn't that new. They're like, oh, no, we, we know this. We've got this. We had this several hundred years before you did. Um, and so they were able to incorporate it very quickly and produce a whole series. Osei's uh, Tale of the Cat is a great one. Uh, the Makioka Sisters is wonderful uh, by Junichiro Tanazaki. Another one in Praise, uh, no, some prefer Nettles, um, crazy. 
for the feel of these sorts of transitions, you can look at, like I said, the old capital by Yasunari Kawabata, an unbelievably beautiful work, strange and, and, and wonderful, all about Kyoto, the old capital. Uh, and so it's just, it calls back to the Heian period, and how do you bring those values, the Maiji values, into a modern world where everything is, is transforming so quickly. Now, and, and he, he has no resolution for any of this, by the way, which is one of the wonderful things about it. And, and so another, again, artistic painting, uh, writing, uh, uh, just this unbelievable production of, of beautiful works happens um, in this impossible language. But within the context of imperialism, Japanese, as soon as they looked at the West and were subject to imperialism, they said, oh, you're either kicked or you're the kicker, to, to summarize. And they said, we don't want to be kicked, so we're going to become the kicker. So we're going to go for Korea, conquer. We're going to go for as much of China as we can get. They got a fair piece. We're going to go after the Russians. That didn't work out so well later, but they did all right. Um, and the further out they go, the increasing problem they had is where do you stop? The more they captured, the more they needed. And this was not necessarily a really highly organized imperial project. It, it, like much of the imperial project, it was a lot of people not necessarily a part of the central government saying, hey, let's attack China. Let's grab this. Let's take that. And then going back and saying, well, we've got this. What do we do with it? And of course, this leads to the unbelievably faithful idea of let's attack the United States. That'll work out great. Um, and, and, and what the following just immolation of their whole culture. I mean, World War, we did not defeat Japan. They're, they're gone. They were just gone. Uh, the, the warrior nobility, think the samurai class that had been the bureaucracy in Japan for, you know, now we're going on 350 years, has been completely humiliated. Thousands committed suicide when Japan surrendered. The emperor, the king, that if you get the emperor, you win, spoke to the population for the first time in, it had been generations and generations and generations since the, the emperor had spoken publicly about anything, because he's completely symbolic. And so the underpinnings of their culture just get wiped out. What do you do? How do you respond? It's also important to remember that Japan now, a very large country, about 45 million, 40 million after the war, no natural resources. No oil, no coal. Not food independent, can't feed themselves. No iron, ba basically zero, that wood, but basically zero natural resources. What do you do on an island like this? And here comes the second Japanese miracle. Today, Japan is the third largest economy in the world. United States one, China two, Japan three. And Japan has one-tenth, maybe, the population of China. Sixty years ago, again, just like when Perry showed up, 60 years ago, level, flat, nothing. No one would have ever predicted this. No one did predict it. <coughs> How do you explain this second Japanese miracle? Very much like this first Japanese miracle. Highly educated, highly organized, highly urbanized. And crucially, for what is about to come in the last 60 years, if you can't go out and conquer resources, how do you get them? You trade for them. 
early aggressive international banking, international trade, international trade agreements. During the war, they called this the East Asian co-prosperity sphere, which meant the Japanese are here to take everything you own. <laughs> After the war, it really became very much more like the East Asian co-prosperity sphere, which is, hey, we've got to all work together and trade with each other so that we can build a common future. They were forced to lead financial and economic internationalization of their economy. They had no choice. And so they were ahead. They were very much ahead of everybody else. Underneath the protective wing of the American military structure, helpful. And so at a time, actually, when the United States was becoming sort of progressively isolationist again, weird trade policies, unwillingness to recognize the rest of the world, the Japanese are like, well, we have no choice. We have to go out and trade. We have to go out and make agreements. We have to develop internally. We have to get the raw resources by trade that we need because we have no military now. And so you get this second cultural fluorescence, which basically continues to today. Again, third largest economy in the world. This makes no sense. A country with no arable land and no natural resources, incredibly densely populated, where they are populated. Most of the country is totally empty. How can they be the third largest economy? And they're not, the economy, I mean, their population is 130-ish million. It's not a, I mean, not a small country. They're bigger than Germany, but they're not a huge country. Much smaller than India or China. But again, industrialized already. The war was a huge industrialization effort. Economically advanced banking, very advanced banking ideas. Hugely educated population. They believe in education. You have to if you're going to make people literate in this. And so, if, and so this post-war period, you get another sort of wave of incredible Japanese literature. Uh, everything from Yukio Mishima, who is my favorite insane author of all time, who tried to overthrow the Japanese government in a military coup. And he had exactly one person who thought this was going to work, and that was him. Uh, but he did try, and when it failed, he committed suicide, which apparently is the right thing to do in that case. Um, but uh, his, his Sea of Tranquility series is considered amongst the most important literary works in, in world history. I mean, it really, really is. He's a terrifyingly powerful author. Um, you also get on, on the happier, more fun side, someone like Kobo Abe, one of my favorite authors. Uh, I recommend, if people know Woman in the Dunes, that's his most famous work, um, which is a nice work. I really like Woman in the Dunes, but I think the Ark Sakura, if you haven't seen this one, much less well-known, but much funnier. It's very hilarious. It's just this crazy work where this guy, Sakura, has b taken these underground tunnels and built this sort of alternative world where he lives. And then sort of various, like a busload of schoolgirls gets kidnapped into there. And then they launch it as the arc into the future. It's hilarious. It's really great. It's, it's, it's a highly recommended work. But this tension between, wow, this incredibly new industrial modern society being written over this very ancient, I mean, this is the thing that it, it's, it's, Japan is like India. Uh, there's a, gr a great quote from an Indian author who said, the West keeps coming over and saying they need to civilize India. He says, the last thing India needs is any more civilization. We've been civilized for 5,000 years. No more civilization, <laughs> right? The Japanese civilization has been there highly developed for well over 1,000 years. And, and 
the language has been developing for that long. So it's highly developed. So no matter how much modernization you put over this, that culture doesn't go away overnight. And it hasn't, and I don't think it's going to. Um, and so when you look at the cultural influences, particularly coming in the United States today, one of the major ones is, of course, all the Japanese cartoons, Japanese movies, Japanese shows, Japanese <coughs> literature. Some of the most, and there's no, why would you, why would Japanese literature be some of the most translated into English and most popular when translated into English? Right? This huge outflowing. One reason is they have a lot to offer. I mean, Zen Buddhism from Japan, right? how all the Japanese Buddhist sects that are in the United States, and there's a lot of them, right? Japanese gardening, Zen gardening, they tend to call it inaccurately, because uh, most people that have Zen gardens have nothing like Zen gardens. Uh, but, you know, that whole gardening tradition. Architecturally, you see all kinds of generally very unfortunate things uh, to build uh, Japanese architecture in this country. Almost always goes horribly wrong. In fact, famously, the Portland uh, Japanese gardens, people familiar with these, that the Japanese ambassador was there when, when it was opened. And he famously looked around, of course, they asked him what he thought, and he said, well, this is amazing. We have nothing like it in Japan. And that's sort of this, the, the sensibility, right? That this that is very, very nice. You know, this is certainly different from anything we have in Japan. Uh, but but it, it's because there is this unbelievably powerful core that has come down. Again, this 800-year history that keeps feeding out, and, and it doesn't go away. Also, always helpful to have your culture backed by the third largest economy in the world. You know, you, you, you kind of have to take them seriously. And so, there you go. Think, the, the last example I was thinking of is just think of something like Sony. Right? I mean, just, I mean, how many people have something by Sony in their house? This is a strange phenomenon. The influence of video games. This is all Japanese, by the way. PlayStation. I mean, this was a, this sort of a Japanese invention, essentially, and a Japanese import. Boy, it's taken the world by storm. But it's a cultural development from Japan for very specific cultural reasons. And so some things that seem very weird to us about some of this is because, why? It's not from our culture. But it is one of the largest influences on our culture today. And so people get a little freaked out about this. They're like, ooh, we don't like these foreign influences on us, which is odd from America, <laughs> who's <laughs> doing nothing but influencing people all over the world. Um, and so, yeah, so th this, which again brings us up to today, Japan faces many challenges today. Their economy, ooh, I mean, still the third largest in the world, so let's not exaggerate this. We would love to have their unemployment rate, by the way. They're terrified because I think it's almost 3%. Um, you know, there's like, which is horrible to them. Um, but they have some demographic structural issues. They're getting old fast, and their population is shrinking now, and it's going to shrink quite rapidly, which is going to present them with a curious problem. For the first time in history, they're either going to have to promote large-scale immigration into Japan, which is an extraordinarily un-Japanese thing to do, or they're just going to figure out how do you take a population of roughly 130-ish million today and in the next 30 years reduce that to 100 or 95. And this is not a small decline. This is an elimination. But if the United States today... If we looked in the future in 30 years and said, oh, in 30 years, the United States is going to be 15% smaller in population. 
it's, it's tricky to do economically because if you have, like, in our system, we have Social Security. Workers today pay into it. Well, at some point, if you don't have anybody working today, how do you do that? And so the, dem the demographic issues, also the rise of China is a big challenge. We keep complaining about the Chinese militarizing. It always makes me laugh because, of course, we have, we're by far the most militarized country in the world. We're by far the most militarized country the world's ever seen. Uh, I mean, we make the Romans look like a bunch of peaceniks uh, as far as our military infrastructure. But, but the Japanese, with essentially no military, I mean, they can throw a baseball to China, right? I mean, this is not, it's not a long ways away. And the, and the Chinese are always sort of poking them, saying, hey, we're going to take this island, and hey, we think we should be able to sell here. And they have no military. This is another challenge they're going to face. Do we remilitarize? Wouldn't be crazy, right? How do, how do you negotiate the rise of the new China? Maybe they become fast friends, and that'll be great for everybody. Do they make up with the Koreans? Ooh, very touchy, that relationship. Um, but maybe that helps offset the, the, the Chinese issue. How do you deal with a world that's now economically integrated? Their real big advantage was they were first off the block. They were sort of the first ones to go, well, not because they thought about it so much, because they had no choice. And they said, well, we have no choice. Let's do this. But now everybody recognizes, most everybody recognizes, you have to integrate your, your economy with the world. Otherwise, you will not succeed. And so the competition is much more fierce for them. Ooh, how do you do that? So all of these are real challenges. But again, as we've seen, when you have a population that is highly educated, highly organized, um, and flexible, dynamic, intellectually interested, aesthetically, artistically, culturally, unbelievably rich, you know, I would not certainly bet against the Japanese despite the many challenges they have. And I really recommend, uh, as I do every night I know, but um, Take a look at some of the Japanese literature. It's very accessible. It's different, but it's, it's, it's very accessible. It's not that challenging. It's beautifully, evocatively written. Again, the, 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 the notion, if you go back to the tale of the Genji, the importance of sensibility, of not saying anything obviously, that which is most important is never spoken, um, produces these sort of lyrical, powerful works. Of course, there's a whole range of, of everything in Japanese literature, but some of the main works that you'll see are, are just great, entrancing, uh, magical. And I think, finally, this explains part of the continuing love affair with Japan. Because it is so powerful, and it is so different, but it's not that different. They're, they're, they're literary and different, which is different from a non-literary culture, right? We, we can identify with theater. Their theater is different, but it's theater. Their novels are different, but they're novels. Because they had theater before we had it in some ways, and they had novels before we had it in every way. Uh, and so this rich cultural dynamic, I don't think it's going to stop. I think we're going to look forward and see just sort of a, a continuing expansion, if nothing else, of Japanese cultural and potentially political and economic influence. So Japan, there you go. Thank you very much.